A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. On the 1st of May 1707, the Acts of Union came into force. England and Scotland, two ancient kingdoms, were fused together to become Great Britain, which is why folks, particularly in other countries, there is no queen or no king of England. They're not the king of England. They are the king or queen of Great Britain and now of the UK. And weirdly, I'll tell you something interesting. There is, I don't think there's a single adjective to describe someone from the UK. They're UK-ish because they're not British. They could be British or Northern Irish. There's no word. We need to fix that. Anyway, a few years after the Acts of Union, Stanhope said, now you may have heard me talk about Stanhope before. Remember, he was actually George I's first prime minister before Sir Robert Walpole. Anyway, Stanhope, senior politician, wrote... Never did a treaty produce more ultimate advantage to a nation. Never was any received with such general and thorough hatred. <laughs> and I've always liked that quote. Really, for me, sums up the energy of the Union. Enormously successful, historically. And yet, endlessly complained about on both sides of the border here in Britain. England and Scotland, once the oldest of enemies, always fractious siblings, then became the closest of allies. But now that union is under pressure. There was a vote on independence in which the union supporters narrowly won in 2014. But following the decision to Brexit in 2016, a decision which the vast majority of Scottish people did not support, the case for independence was revitalised. Very important week this week, as in the Supreme Court in London. It was decided that Nicola Sturgeon and the Nationalists, the supporters of independence, are not allowed to call a second referendum against the wishes of the UK government. The UK government doesn't want one to happen. And so the referendum of October 2023 is off and the fight for independence continues. We thought we'd better talk about independence this week. So we got Professor Murray Pittock back on the podcast. He's a legend, pro-vice principal and Bradley professor at the University of Glasgow. He's been on before. We talked to him about the Battle of Culloden and Jacobitism, the clan system. Now we're going to look back at the long history of Anglo-Scottish relations and the history of the Union and how that underpins the contemporary debate. Enjoy.
Murray, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. A pleasure, Dan. Good to speak to you again. Let's talk about the Kingdom of Scotland itself. But Scotland emerges like England to its south. It's a story of the slow accumulation of territory by one portion of what is now Scotland. That's the case, actually. There's a period, I suppose, in the 8th and 9th centuries when the Picts are the main kingdom and Dalrieta, which is the kingdom of the Scots, the Gaelic speakers, rather than what is rather like Welsh, the Brythonic speakers, are subsidiary, but sometimes they're on top. And eventually it's they really fundamentally who win out and Scotland becomes a Gallic polity and a more or less centralised kingdom. And so the Pictish lands were roughly speaking to the east, were they? Yeah, well, east and north. I mean, the whole of the Pictish kingdom probably runs in sometimes as far as Orkney and as far south as the Forth. So it's large. And then my favourite of all the British kingdoms that have ever existed, I think, is Dalriato, which extends from the Western Isles of Scotland into the north of Ireland as well. They end up overcoming the Picts and being the basis of the modern Scotland, do they? They do. So Dalriata becomes the basis of the development of the Scottish state, but it is overlaid by the invitation rather than conquest, the invitation in of large numbers of Normans, starting with Macbeth, but then under David I, who reigned from 1124 to 1153, brought in a large number of Normans. And so what you get in Scotland is a coalescence of Norman feudalism and Gaelic Gaelic social organisation. Both of those things are present. People like the Robert the Bruce's family is this extraordinary blend of those different traditions, isn't it? But Edinburgh still has to bring outlying parts of what is now Scotland under its control. That process takes a long time, doesn't it? I would say that Scotland probably is a fully centralised kingdom with the exception of Orkney and Shetland by the beginning of the 14th century. There is a lot of discussion round about the role of the Lords of the Isles until the 15th century, the leaders of Clan Donald in the West, A lot of that is really about their competition for Scottish noble titles and the ownership of large tracts of other earldoms and territorial titles out with the Western Isles rather than having a quasi-separate kingdom. I think you could view them as analogous to the Percy Earls of Northumberland in the sense that they operate in a way which is very difficult to incorporate fully into the central polity, but they're not an alternative polity. Though there's a moment in 1402 where that's almost the case. However, that's a different story. Oh, we'd go deep diving out some other time. I'd love that. Now, we get the various attempts by the English to conquer their northern neighbours, which fail. And we then get, in the very early 17th century, a very resonant event now. Queen Elizabeth dies and her nearest living relative is the Scottish king who marches south to London, which is um, something we've also seen recently. Why did James VI of Scotland become the king of England and Scotland in 1603? James inherited the crown because he was fundamentally the nearest heir as the great-grandson of Margaret Tudor and James IV, Margaret Tudor being the daughter of Henry VII. I mean, I don't think having James was really a very popular move. Many people didn't want this to happen. And Elizabeth never actually named him. But there was really very little alternative without creating civil conflict to having James. So James came. James becomes, in fact, I said, king of two countries. In fact, became king of Ireland as well, the three kingdoms. The next hundred years are fairly turbulent, aren't they? I mean, is that 
Oh, it was because of everything, because the Reformation, various things, great sweeping changes. But was it quite unstable having these three kingdoms separate and yet under one sovereign? In a way, not, but in a way, yes. And that's terribly kind of Kenny Dalgleish, maybe Zai, maybe Noah kind of answer. But first of all, it's a composite monarchy. They're very common in the early modern period. Denmark, Norway, the Commonwealth of Poland, Lithuania. There are many other examples. The issue is really, and this got lessons for the present day perhaps, is that England had very great difficulty coming to terms with the fact that it wasn't the only kingdom. In other words, that whereas Scotland understood the state as a composite monarchy, England really thought it was England, plus whatever Scotland did, it could just get up to on its own. But if it intruded whatever England wanted to do, then it needed to be brought to heel. And so there was no real constitutional mechanism for operating as a multinational polity. And that was actually compounded by the fact that the Scottish Diplomatic Service was effectively completely a Crown patronage appointment system. So that when the Crown moved to England, they just appointed the diplomats. And that means they stopped appointing Scottish diplomats. And so there were attempts to keep Scottish foreign policy alive in the 17th century, but they ran into big trouble because basically patronage was with the king who was in London. And... You then have the used to be called the English Civil War, now much more properly known as the kind of War of the Three Kingdoms or the wars that involve all England, Scotland and Ireland, and in which the Scottish play an absolute decisive part. But I'm always fascinated by 1688, where William and Mary come across from Holland, are to a certain extent welcomed in England. But Scotland at that moment had a huge opportunity to not go along with the English Parliament decision. And yet, actually, Scotland goes even further. They say James II, rather than the English have a fiction that James II sort of abdicated, Scotland goes further and says James II was almost treasonous. He is being removed and William is replaced. That's a huge moment, isn't it? It is the claim of rights, a big moment in 1689. It stands in a tradition which goes back not just to Calvin's political theory in the 16th century, but arguably to the Declaration of Arbroath itself in 1320, which says, of course though it's largely rhetorical in the declaration that if Robert the Bruce should fail them in any way, that the community of the realm of Scotland can cashier him and get rid of him and choose somebody else who'll defend the country better. So that's what happens with James. It is a big moment, but of course, it's very much a confessional moment. Scotland is also very closely aligned in the 17th century with the Netherlands. There's even a suggestion more than once of Scotland becoming one of the United Provinces. That's first suggested in 1677 that it should join Zealand and become yet another united province. So that's a very different way to go. But first of all, Scotland's very close to the Netherlands in a lot of ways, including religiously. And secondly, James's Catholicism is a big turnoff in large parts of Scotland, particularly central Scotland. One has to remember, however, that when it came to the Scottish estates and the claim of right, there were a lot of politics in the mix. I mean, for example, James's chancellor wrote to them in very, very firm terms about coming back into their obedience. He didn't do any politics. He just, you know, do it or else. And they just said, well, or else then, that's fine. So there's a lot of politics. But yes, it was a very radical statement. And of course, it underpins some future constitutional discussions, including those around about the American Declaration of Independence. Queen Anne, a Stuart, James II's daughter, so sort of patching over the schism of the 1680s. Queen Anne does not have any children. Tragically, all of them die. And then you've got an issue, haven't you? Because the succession is going to pass to the reasonably distant Hanoverians. What is it at that point that made 
Queen Anne and her government seek to formalise this union between England and Scotland? Was it that looming succession issue? That was certainly part of it. So there was a range of um, events. First of all, under William, there was the Scottish parliamentary investigation into the massacre at Glencoe. And although William had certainly signed the order to extirpate the Macdonalds, was not included and castigated in the findings, William certainly didn't like them having the inquiry. So that rather turned William to favour the union. Then when the English Parliament passed the Act of Settlement in 1701, which secured the Hanoverian succession, they didn't consult Scotland at all. Hence the issues about some of the contemporary reflections of this in political terms, and also the way in which the composite monarchy didn't work because of that lack of consultation. Therefore, Scotland, first of all, passed the Act of Security, and then the Act to End Peace and War. Those two acts both reserved to Scotland the right for an independent foreign policy and for Scotland the right to an independent line of succession unless certain guarantees were met by the English government. And those were seen as direct constitutional challenges. And the real fear, of course, was, and it was not an idle fear because 22,000 men came out to fight for him in 1715, that James VIII and III would return to Scotland and become king and that he would have French help in doing so. And how did Anne and her managers get the Act of Union through the Scottish ruling class? Well, there are really two ways. First of all, a commission was appointed and the Crown selected all members of the commission. They included one or two Jacobites, kind of just for show, who would grumble and complain, but who would not be able to, act, to do anything, men like George Lockett of Carnwath. But basically, it was a packed commission to treat on the Union, the Alien Act of 1705 made it clear that Scots would not only be excluded from English overseas trade, but would be aliens within England unless union negotiations opened. There was a good deal of religious sympathy on the Presbyterian side. A lot of patriots nonetheless went down the Union Road for religious reasons because they feared a Catholic restoration in Scotland under the Jacobites, or at least a restoration which would restore episcopacy and tolerate Catholicism. There was also the feel that Scotland was enormously ambitious from a very early date in overseas trade and had been constructively excluded by the Navigation Acts and other measures from the English imperial trade and didn't have the power, the sea power, to project itself like the Netherlands or Portugal. So basically, the Scots couldn't create a commercial empire and couldn't create the major trading companies, tried to, of course, the company of Scotland, but couldn't create the major trading companies, which would sustain the enormous growth in wealth some of the major European powers saw in this early modern era. So they saw that the access to imperial markets promised by the Union was absolutely mission critical. And that's what swung the Union. But even so, the Union itself is rather an odd beast because the document partly is about things which are to do with parliamentary right, which can be changed by future Westminster parliaments, and part of things which are supposed to be for all time coming, which are linked to the rights of the crown in Scotland. So in a sense, Scotland remains in part a separate kingdom under the Union and in part is merged with Westminster. What we might call a classic British compromise, but we live in an increasingly uncompromising era and that's one of the challenges of today. You're listening to Dan Snow's History, talking about the Anglo-Scottish Union. More coming up, or maybe not. 
why were medieval priests so worried that women were going to seduce men with fish that they'd kept in their pants? Who was the first gay activist? And what on earth does the expression sneezing in the cabbage mean? Well, I'll tell you, it's not a cookery technique, that's for sure. Join me, Kate Lister, on Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast where we will be bed-hopping throughout time and civilization to bring you the quirkiest and kinkiest stories from history. What more could you possibly want? Listen to Betwixt the Sheets today, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. A podcast by History Hit. 日本人の歴史を知ることができます。日本人の歴史を知ることができます。日本人の歴史を知ることができます。日本人の歴史を知ることができます。日本人の歴史を知ることができます。日本人の歴史を知ることができます。日本人の歴史を知ることができます。日本
Indeed, Charles Dilke, when he goes abroad in 1868 and writes, the British Empire outside Great Britain should be called Scotland. It's a bit of a joke. He's a radical liberal MP. But nonetheless, he's making a point. But one of the other interesting things about that compromise, I mean, there's much that could be said about it, is that Scottish institutions abroad from the 17th century onwards, St Andrew's societies, Caledonian societies, later on Barnes clubs and others, they exist not only to socialise and to network Scots in the British Empire, but also to exclude non-Scots from jobs, to get Scots jobs and to exclude non-Scots. They are completely tolerated, indeed patronised by any English governors and uh, not that there aren't often Scottish governors and governors general in this period. So it's an interesting, again, a toleration of Scotland expressing itself nationally abroad, providing it doesn't express itself nationally at home. And of course, many of the great epic moments of British military history feature Scottish units, be it at the Battle of Waterloo, Quebec, elsewhere. Scotland plays a disproportionate part in the military, well, the hard power element of the British Empire. Yeah, there was a big ideology around that, which we've now, again, largely forgotten. It's very interesting to look at films like The Charge of the Light Brigade made in the 60s, or indeed as late as Zulu Dawn at the end of the 70s, and the visibility of non-English troops in the British Army, whereas most modern adaptations, you'd think everyone that ever served in British Imperial Forces came from England. But uh, the initial huge access of Scots into British Imperial Forces comes as part of the solution to the fact that the post-Culloden Scotland cannot be kept down. I mean, it can be kept down, but it can only be kept down by large-scale occupation of British troops. So really, they have to start raising people to serve overseas. That is the solution that's adopted in the mid-1750s. And it's a very successful solution in the War of 1756-63. Indeed, the Heights of Abraham are accessed by the British forces in 1759 because a Scottish soldier formerly in the French service can do the password in French. So at these critical moments all the way through to the 20th century, but they're often presenting the kind of rhetoric of the Scots as kind of elemental, primitive, but brave, and that they are, as it were, what people in the empire, if they consent to be conquered, will turn into. That's, for example, how Scots are presented in wars on the northwest frontier as late as the 1880s. You too, you Pashtuns, can be like these Scots. If they're capable of civilization, so are you. Nationalism... We see it, of course, in India. We see it everywhere in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. How much of Scottish nationalism is a product of people seeking more local, more regional national identities against these giant sort of heterodox, dynastic, imperial, monarchical states? And how much in particular to the internal politics and the history of the Isles? Scottish patriotism is very profound in the 19th, early 20th century, but it doesn't fundamentally threaten the union and the reason it doesn't fundamentally threaten the union is the union doesn't fundamentally threaten it. So Scottish nationalism, I think, in the modern era is, in many respects, much more like the nationalism, if you people wouldn't normally call it that, but that's really what it is, of Canada, Australia and New Zealand than it's like the nationalism of Catalonia. It's about moving on. And one of the things that moving on has come about from is the big change you get between the 1930s and, Indi and the Festival of Britain in 51, where you get a move from a Britishness and identity. So there's a big Scottish national pavilion, for example, in 1938, 
the Festival of Britain does away for the first time with the idea that British is an international identity. It sees it much more as a national one. It's on the back of the Battle of Britain, of the standing alone, the Dunkirk myth, of the introduction of the term postcode lottery in the 45-51 Labour government. All of those things create an idea of a Britain which is unitary and an island, and uh, just an island. And that starts to exclude Scotland because it's fine to be Scottish and British in a world where you can be Canadian and British and New Zealand and British. But when that starts to be being British or being New Zealand, Scots like to be Scots. And the lack of room for Scotland compared to a situation where, for example, in the 1940s, Walter Scott was set, and not just the English novels either, was set for school certificate in English schools. The lack of a voice, a national presence within the British family of nations, that is the critical driver. That combined with the loss of imperial markets and the empire itself, and therefore the loss of the imperial bargain of the union. These are the drivers for modern Scottish nationalism. That in the sense, the union has changed, and that's why Scotland has changed. It's almost like the British Conservative Party, they could win majorities of the UK Parliament with English votes if they fired up English nationalism, but they also knew that might break the union. So they turn away from it in the late 19th, early 20th centuries as the Liberals used the Irish vote, for example. But it's almost like in recent years they've decided to give in to that primal urge. The union was almost so sacrosanct that the British Conservative Party were almost happy not to be in power to preserve it. And that appears to have changed over the last few years, few decades. It's an interesting reading of how they've done things. The question is, is it as deliberate as that? Do they actually know what they're, they're doing? Maybe they do. I think they knew in the Edwardian, late Victorian Edwardian period, I think they knew that they could guarantee themselves permanent majorities, but at the cost of breaking the union. I think they did know that back then, and they've sort of forgotten that now. They certainly knew it then, and they might know it now. So, I mean, I think they've taken, increasing risks have been taken, shall we put it this way, with the union, even given the setup of the post-60s era was fundamentally a positive one for the growth of Scottish nationalism. That growth is only going to be intensified by a sense that Scotland is to be discarded or suppressed not just implicitly, but explicitly within the union. This may be the vision, but I'm not quite sure what the long-term strategic political vision here of either the Conservative or I have to say the Labour Party is, because the Labour Party's spokespersons have not, of course, adopted a unionist position vis-a-vis Scotland, but interestingly, both Keir Starmer and his Northern Irish spokeswoman have suggested that a Labour campaign for the union in a cross-border poll, that is explicitly excluded by the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, which Labour government created. So I think there's a fetishization of the union combined with a lack of understanding of what it really is, which is not, you know, some kind of deal whereby you can lock these countries away in a safe and pretend they don't exist. <laughs> That's not a good idea. I think you mentioned the term strategic vision from uh, Westminster politicians, which I, I think is um, probably lacking. So listen, Murray, thank you very much indeed for coming on and talking about that. Everyone should go and buy your book, which is called... Scotland, The Global History. Boom. It's a great book. Murray Pittock, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We'll probably be talking to you again in the next few months and years. Dan, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. You make it so easy to talk. Thank you. Thank you. 
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.